0: It's the Lockdown Podcast Network, your team every day.
1: Welcome on third episode already. We are old hands at this now. Nate Duncan here joined by John Hollinger. If you're a new listener, don't forget to subscribe. Just search Hollinger and Duncan. You probably even could get away with just searching Hollinger in your podcast player of choice. Uh, Mash that subscribe button. Give us a, a review, tell your friends, uh, uh, share on Twitter or your social media platform of choice, uh, anything you can do there to help us get this thing off the ground and convince the incredible luminary, John Hollinger, to continue doing this podcast with little old me.
3: You you did not call me podcast veteran, John Hollinger.
1: <laughs> I'm saving that for episode four.
0: <laughs>
3: uh,
1: all right, well, let's uh, talk a little basketball here instead of discussing our boring lives uh you wrote a piece this week on the toronto raptors you're up there for ring night we talked about that a little bit last week but their team especially getting off to this pretty decent start now some good growth from their young players and the idea of just where they go from here is a fascinating one i I think the place i want to start with that though is and i think this is always important when we go through this of trying to figure out what a team's path should be is just what do they have right now? And I think where I want to start is what you've seen from Pascal Siakam before. I mean, to my eyes, he, he's taken another pretty big leap forward here. If you're looking at him as a foundational piece, you know, how good is that as you know potentially your number one option on a team going forward?
3: Yeah, I mean that's uh, one of, one of the things I wrote about in the in the Athletic is just sizing up where this where this team is right now and where they're going and Siakam's definitely a piece of that that's still a developing story because he gets better almost seemingly with each game and develops new skills so you know I think last year people thought of him as a number two number three guy now you look at him as he's clearly the number one guy on the Raptors right now who are clearly a pretty good team right now but Where's the limit? Where does this go? Can he be the number one guy on a championship team? Does he have to be the number two guy on a team like that? I think those are important questions for the Raptors to get answers to because that does dictate some choices for them.
1: You know, it was only this time last year that I was castigating him for dribbling too much and, like, oh, come on. Like, uh, it's nice that you think you have this skill level, but, like, how far is it really going to go? And obviously, I proved to be a complete moron. In that regard, and he's looked fantastic so far. I think the development of the jumper to me is the biggest thing for him as far as someone that you can put the ball in his hands all the time because the saw teams have a lot of success putting bigger guys on him in the playoffs and he wasn't able to force them to guard him out on the floor so he could blow by or make him pay with the jumper. And so then he was going into length trying to finish it. That wasn't really going to work that well. Now the way he's hit the jump shot had a rough one against the Bucks last night but overall the way he shot it especially off the dribble from 3 two point range he shot it well and so now you if you can't put the center on him anymore now you really have a pretty limited number of guys in the league who can guard him uh and you know maybe you can count ten of them where you're not going to have to feel like we ought to bring help on, on every possession and that's uh, exceedingly valuable
3: Absolutely. Yeah, like you said, even in the postseason last year, teams were okay living with him shooting from outside. And if if that gets to be a a choice teams don't want to make, then you, you run out of guys who can guard him pretty quickly. Or you end up in a situation where you where you still have to give up the jump shot because it's the least bad thing you can give up. But they're going in at a high enough clip that it's great offense for the Raptors.
1: Yeah, and he's shooting... 42% from three on five and a half per game right now not going to stay that high I'm going to guess but even if it's 36% and you consider a lot of those are off the dribble that's going to be pretty darn difficult to deal with so I think you know I don't know if he's going to be a top 10 player in the league but when you consider his defense you could see him maybe being top 20 Um but Beyond there, they got a nice piece in in Ananobi, and then it's mostly veteran role players with this group, and they are relatively thin, having lost two rotation pieces that they really didn't replace at all with limited resources to do so, admittedly, and also having to wait for six days for Kawhi to make his decision. So if you're looking at the Raptors right now, and this gets to some existential questions for me that I always think are, are interesting, you know, how much is it worth to be the fourth seed this year and probably lose in five or six games in the second round to Philly or something like that versus the possibility of maybe training, training Kyle Lowry and Marcus soul or Serge Ibaka uh, and potentially trying to reload for 2021 when they might try and get Giannis uh, or, and then there's also the idea of Kyle Lowry is this franchise icon. And do you want to move him? How do you think they're trying to balance all of those factors?
3: Well, I think it's, in some ways, Masai Jury's history speaks for itself, right? That he's not a guy who's content to just be pretty good for several years. We saw that already. You don't do the DeRozan trade if if um, if that's your mindset. And uh, as as this team uh, goes forward, I think the other thing is the development of Siakam. Is now he's that magnet guy that another star could glom onto and say, okay. If I team up with this guy, we're going to be really good. And so that that adds another layer to it. Once you get into free agency type situations, Ter- Toronto too is in a situation where I mean, because they play in the East, they can probably have their cake and eat it too. They, they'll they'll make the if they trade these guys in February, they'll probably still make the playoffs. They'll probably have banked up enough wins by then, and there's enough mediocre teams they can get some more. You know, they can limp in with 43 or 44 or whatever and kind of play it both ways.
1: Yeah, well, the the East uh, does not look good to start the year for sure. And Toronto is looking like a playoff. Lock. To me, though, it's a sliding scale on just what can you get for these guys, right? And some years yeah. we've seen teams really going for it. We'll see, you know, an Aaron Aflalo or a Jeff Green get traded for a first-round pick. Then it yo-yoed the opposite direction in part because first round picks became undervalued on the, on the rookie salary scale. Now the rookie salary scale is going up again a little bit. So just the question of who really can use these guys and what the price is, right? I mean, if it's, Hey, we'll trade you a first round pick lottery protected for Cal Lowry for the end of this year and next year. I mean, to me, even if it, you know, Cal Lowry isn't necessarily going to win you a playoff series. That's not worth it for me, especially considering what he's meant to the franchise. I mean, I think it's gotta get closer to something like the package for Mike Conley being sent to Utah, where you really start to think about it, you know, and Gasol, Ibaka, I mean, maybe if there's an understanding that those guys don't want to come back and you could get a lot of your protected verse for one of those guys, then maybe you do it. But do you think that there is an enticing enough package out there for these guys to make it worth it? To make yourself worse uh, this season, and uh, in the case of Lowry, to really perhaps alienate the fan base and take away what's uh, obviously a great story for Mister Toronto Raptor. Uh,
3: I again, I think they've already shown they're they're willing to face the music on stuff like that. Um, now, yeah. obviously, they they did this to get to G- Kawhi Leonard last time, but. They they I mean they've been open for business on other players though. So Yeah.
1: But but I mean are are you doing it for just a lot of a protected first round pick? I mean that to me I wouldn't do it. In part because the player is still good and you still win games like that still has value too.
3: I think well one of the things when we talk about just about a draft pick, you're trying to be as enticing as you can in 2000 in the summer of 2021. So it's not necessarily about the draft pick you get back, but can you can you gain seven years on a trade, right? Can you get somebody hmm. who's in their 20s who maybe isn't as good as Kyle Lowry right now, but can be part of that group going forward where you say Siakam and a re-signed Van Vliet maybe and and this other guy, and now you're talking about a really good nucleus to put around a potential free agent. Uh, I don't know, maybe if you sign somebody from Greece, for instance, um, yeah,
1: you you uh, reported in your piece, uh, according to league sources, that they will be going after Giannis in uh, 2021.
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to figure that out. But, uh, <laughs> you know, half the, half the league will be doing the same thing. But I do think Toronto sees themselves as being a prime contender for him and really having a, a legitimate shot in a way that several other teams probably do not.
1: Yeah, that, that'll be interesting. I, of course, he destroyed them last night, ironically, as we're talking about this. The fit of him and Siakam is an interesting one too. And would you play Siakam at the three and Giannis at the four? And then you basically would have to have a stretch five or you would close games with Giannis at the five and Siakam at the four. I mean, those two players are extremely similar to one another. I, I actually called Siakam uh, sort of a poor man's Giannis before he, he learned to shoot. So that, I mean, obviously it's one of those problems that you figure out and it, and it would be great. And I don't think Giannis is going to like not come there. Uh, because Siakam is already there and they have somewhat similar skill sets. But that would be fascinating to think about those two guys on the same team.
3: I mean, you, when you get to like fourth quarters and playoff games and you can play those two at four and five and put three smalls around them, I, that's going to be really hard to deal with to me.
1: Yeah, I I, I mean, I, I'm not going to say I hope it happens because I, I enjoy watching Giannis now. So um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess back to the initial question though. I mean, what do you think the price realistically is uh, for Lowry, that, um, like that, that, or, I'm sorry, that not that would make them jump, but that would realistically be available from
3: another team. Right. You, you raise an interesting dilemma. Is someone going to go beyond a protected first for him? Uh, unlikely. Um, but maybe there's some, maybe there's some combination of assets where the pick isn't great, but you get a player back too who's interesting. Um, like I think, as I look at their situation, I th- I do think the player side is probably more interesting than the pick side, unless you're talking about a pick that they can definitely get this year, uh, and and that they know and and that there was someone that they liked that they knew they kind of wanted this year, because like like well, I said, a that-
1: let me stop you there. So you think even as early as the trade deadline, if you're saying, hey, we're gonna get a lot of protected pick. This pick is going to be probably, you know, we our analytics department projects that this team, if they get Kyle Lowry, they're going to give us the twenty second pick. You go as far as to say no, it's not just the value of the twenty second pick; it's hey, we think there's someone who's going to be there at twenty two that we really want. You're looking that far forward as far as specific players who might be available at that number. Uh,
3: probably a little bit of a, a reach uh, as I think about this to be to be saying that in February. Although I w- I will say, I mean they they were on bruno really early that year and and i think he was he was going to be their guy from a from a pretty early point now i don't know if it was quite that early um no you you raise a good point when you're when you're at the trade deadline you're looking more at what will the suite of options be let's say who are who are the guys we're likely looking at i mean even then you sort of have an idea one of the things we talked about a lot in in valuing draft picks, was just how good is this draft this year? Are there are there a wide variety of players we like, or is it, or is it pretty limited? Um, and there's definitely been been years with each. Uh,
1: well, did you guys turn out to be right on that? Like it, I, I've always felt like good draft, bad draft. People say that, and then you look back three years, four years later, and it never actually seems to correlate with what people were saying before the draft.
3: Uh, I would say there's been a a some correlation. Uh, but 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 you're correct. We there's a there's a tendency among the group to at this time of year when you're first seeing prospects to say, "Wow, this year's draft isn't very good," and then as the year goes on, and you start seeing more people <laughs> and like a few more by the by draft by draft night, you're excited about 61 players. So that, there's def, there's definitely a tendency toward that. But I do think there's a knowledge, especially. Um, well, in two areas. One at the high end, um, who are the, you know, true elite. You know, if there's an Anthony Davis in the draft, you know, pretty quickly. Yeah. And then I, I do think I do think the depth into the first round uh, and the back end of the lottery is something that we we've been able to do an okay job of forecasting, kind of knowing which which years had had closer to closer to fifteen to twenty really high level guys, and which. Years had probably closer to eight to ten. Now it doesn't mean we were all right about who belonged in which group, but generally, if you if you looked at the size of the buckets, you you get a pretty good idea of the quality of the draft, as, especially when we're talking about a, a first round pick.
1: Yeah, I, I have, as, over the years have focused more uh, on the top ten, and I remember you know twenty fourteen was supposed to be the seminal draft. You look back now, uh, other than Embiid, there really. Uh, isn't anyone in that top 10 that's uh, been a big star 2015 was not supposed to be that great going you know a year out and then it was awesome you know two months afterwards and now you look back and say it's it's kind of okay 2016 everyone was right about that one hasn't been any good um 2018 I don't remember anyone being like oh this is amazing but look back that one's pretty good 2019 people were down on it's looking okay so far so it's uh yeah, I think it it is kind of difficult to to do it, but from my standpoint, I kind of look at it as just like okay, I'm gonna the value of the pick is just what's the typical value of the pick. Now, obviously, I don't do as much scouting as you do for the guys later, but yeah, that that's an interesting thing to talk about. So, um, yeah, I mean, we said I've we, we tried to answer this three times, but we kind of got sidetracked thanks to me. Um, yeah, I I really wonder who it would be. That's going to give up more than just, ah, you know, your kind of decent prospect who's in his second year or your lotto protected first round pick for Lowry. Um, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe a team like the Clippers, you could look at that. Um, because gets, Lowry would be an unbelievable fit there.
3: It gets interesting if we start seeing an arms race because, yeah. Every contender could use Lowry. Even if you have a point guard, you just play Lowry next to him. He's so tough. He can guard every two in the league, basically. Um, He's a winning player. Come playoff time, he's going to do all those little things. Doesn't need to be the guy, as he showed last year. So I I think he contributes on a lot of different levels. Uh, In in terms of what what a package could look like to entice them more, here's an interesting question. Is Norm Powell a positive or negative asset at his number?
1: Looking like probably negative at this point. Uh, he's not off to the greatest start this year. I mean, he's going to just, he's going to play. Uh, and, uh, also once Siakam fouled out, they decided in the first game that he was their best isolation player. (laughs) But, uh, aside from that, I mean, I think you probably got to say negative, especially given how far out that contract runs.
3: Well, exactly. So then can you, can you make it a more enticing package by coming back to Toronto and saying, we'll remove this 11 from your book? And then make your life easier in, in free agency in 21, where to the point that you might be able to pay a bigger number than you hope for Van Vliet or keep one of these other secondary guys on your books and still be able to have max room. Is there value in that?
1: Yeah. Then you get into some salary matching trouble, too. Then you got, you know, $40 million worth of salary that you, you got to match. That could be difficult uh, for some of these, te- especially teams that just put together their team, you know, Lakers, Clippers, Sixers. You know, those are all teams that could probably really use Lowry, but in terms of A, the assets going back with the Lakers and B, the matching salary, I think a lot of those teams would be kind of hard pressed, uh, to find enough Clippers might have the, the best chance, but unless you're training Tobias Harris as your Philly, you know, that then it's tough there too. Philly, um,
3: Philly definitely yeah. has a hard time getting to large salary match numbers. Uh, you know, they can either pool like eight guys together or they can trade one of their starters. And, yeah. and, and I'm not sure either of those is realistic.
1: All right, let's take a quick break here. And we need to talk a little bit more about the Orlando Magic, a team that John saw twice and another fascinating team building exercise there for them, given where they are as a lower run playoff team, but maybe not any clear paths for improving. So we'll talk to that right after this.
0: David Harrison here, the Locked on Washington football team podcast, celebrating with you a 21 grain salute to a less boring sandwich. Thanks to Dave's killer bread. I don't know about you guys, but when I eat pizza, I eat it for the toppings good dave's killer bread is made with the highest quality organic and non-gmo ingredients and is power packed with whole grains fiber and protein visit dave's to learn more and look for dave's killer bread in the bread aisle of your local grocery store
2: what's up sports fans matt peck here host of locked on bulls and i want to talk to you really quickly about another excellent podcast huge fan is a new serious xm original podcast where stars talk sports each week, join host Lachina Robinson as she chats with your favorite celebs about childhood sports memories, game day rituals, the most heated rivalries, and more. And this new season features huge names like Anthony Ramos from In the Heights and Hamilton, Pat Carney from the Black Keys, Mel C., that's right, a.k.a. Sporty Spice from the Spice Girls, and even actress Michelle Williams talking about her love for our very own Chicago Bulls. Huge fan is a fresh way to connect with your favorite artists, actors, and personalities about something we all understand. Fandom. Huge fan is now out on Pandora, Stitcher, Apple podcasts, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the show or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. So you never miss an episode.
1: All right. You spent the last two days in Orlando. Let's start off the same question that that we had with Toronto. How are they looking right now?
3: Well, it's, it's a little rough on the offensive end, I'll say. They are, they are last in offensive efficiency. They are last in three point shooting. They are last in shooting at the rim, I believe, as well. And, uh,
1: last in free throw last rate. Last in
3: free throw rate. So there's, there's a lot of things that are not going well for them offensively. Uh, they did move Markel Foltz into the starting lineup for DJ Augustine, uh, for the, for the game against Denver. And I, the interesting part of that to me was not that Augustine was doing horribly with the starters, although he's he's not exactly setting the world on fire either, but that when they would bring in Fultz with a second unit that already had Aminu and Bomba, and a lot of times Evan Fournier was off the floor by then, you just ran into these catastrophic spacing scenarios, and you really saw it against Milwaukee's length the night before, where the starters got Orlando out to a nice lead. And then once they got into the bench, Milwaukee went on a forty to nine run uh, to turn Oof. a a thirteen point deficit into a giant blowout by halftime. So I, it's it's going to be interesting. I mean, Fultz, you see little baby steps each game, but right now he's still a negative offensive player with with the way he's shooting the ball and how far people play off of him, but. It, He's 21 years old. I still think there's a lot of hope in that organization that he can continue to take steps forward and be a long-term starter for them.
1: Yeah, some of these shooting numbers for them are ghastly right now. Vucevic, 21% for three. Augustin, you might say, well, hey, how can you take him off the floor? Their problem is they can't shoot. Well, he's only taken 12 threes in six games and made three of them. So, I mean, he he was a big part of what they're doing last year because he could actually take that shot off the pick and roll now you know for whatever reason you probably watched him more than i have but he is hasn't been able to get his shot off uh, from three i can't remember him taking
3: i've seen them in person four times this year i can't remember him taking one three off the dribble maybe maybe he did and i just didn't record it but it's not 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 a frequent event
1: yeah Uh, i mean they're going to shoot it better overall i think but the problem is They're so bad in offense right now that, like, even if they just get back to kind of passable levels shooting the ball, they're still going to be like really behind the eight ball offensively. And they're, you know, even in their playoff season a year ago, they were 22nd in offense. And, you know, the defense has been fine. I think they can, that can maintain all year. But yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to see them getting out of the 20s in offense. And some of their young players have have kind of stagnated a, a little bit. You know, there isn't really, Anyone that you look at faults with his shooting limitations. Isaac hasn't shot it well. Aaron Gordon, a rough start to the year. You know, those were kind of their three hopes for getting a lot better. And one of those guys would pop, they take the next step. So what the hell did they do as an organization now? I mean, last last year was a great story. They'd been out of the playoffs for seven straight years after the Dwight Howard trade before that. But they're kind of in NBA purgatory now. How do they get out?
3: Yeah, I think step 1 for them is don't panic because they still yeah. they still have a wind at their backs in terms of the ages of a lot of these guys. Uh their cap situation is pretty good. Even the players that they have that are more veterans like Vucevic and Gordon have declining money on their contracts. Uh Fournier's contract probably isn't great, but it's not killing them either. Like they they're in a pretty good situation to go in a lot of different directions or to strike when When somebody becomes available that maybe you wouldn't expect to be available, they still have all their picks. They have, they have younger players in the pipeline. You know, you talk about Isaac, they'd probably be reluctant to put in a a deal or whatever, but they have these guys like Fultz and Mo Bamba, uh, you know, when Aaron Gordon, maybe, uh, Chumo Okiki, who's probably not going to play this year, but, uh, showed some real offensive talent at Auburn a year ago and could be a guy who, Helps unlock them a little bit. I do think eventually they're going to have to choose at the three, four, five, which of these guys are going to go forward with and which of them is expendable in a trade for another guard because they're, they're going to need another guard and another shooter at some point here. Uh, Steve Clifford would say that point is probably tomorrow, but, uh, <laughs> they, they, they're, they're going to need that just to, just to be able to play a, a real NBA offense. And then I think, uh, to, kind of even out this this jumble, this bulge they have at the 3-4, where you have Gordon, Isaac, Alfaruka Minu, and then you still have uh Okiki who's a combo forward coming in next year. The like that has to get settled out at some point, especially if O'Kiki can play, which obviously they're they're hoping he can, and I, I do believe he can. I think he's a pretty good offensive player. So that that probably is the biggest thing they have to weigh. And again, they don't have to do it immediately, but there has to be an evaluation of which of these guys is really core and which of them is expendable and how do we turn those that, that expendable piece or pieces into the thing we need.
1: So what do you think? Who, who's core? Who's expendable?
3: I think Isaac, to me, is the most core just because he has the the ceiling to be – uh, a a one man defense almost where where just having him on your team like a Rudy Gobert where just having him on your team yeah. guarantees that you're top five or top ten or whatever defensively. Yeah, he he
1: just looks huge out there, man. Like he is enormous.
3: Yeah, there there are plays he just swallowed up, and you could you could see uh in the Denver game, just scenarios where where. Paul Millsap ISOs against him and you realize two dribbles into it that this is just hopeless like it's not going to yeah. happen at all and uh th- th- there and you saw it even in the Milwaukee game uh where where he was you know able to make some stands against uh, Giannis that he's he's only 22 he he he's a youngish 22 too in terms of he didn't come in all chiseled and filled out and everything too yeah. and i his offensive game still has places that he needs to get to but defensively man he's really good right now and and can still get a lot better
1: it's really difficult for me to f- figure out where they go i, I agree with you uh, isaac is probably the guy i like the most and yeah i mean they're you know terrence ross is also shooting 19 percent from three right now Like they're, they're they're gonna get better as far as making the playoffs this year i think they're still gonna do it i agree don't panic but in terms of the long-term franchise you you noted that some of their guys are younger I would point out that their two best players last year were Vucevic and Augustin, and both of those guys were big regression candidates this year for me, and that's been occurring so far. Absolutely. Again, both those guys will shoot better, but you know, and they kind of double down, bring back Ross as well on you know a market level contract. So I just they're not going to have space for a while. They haven't been a free agent destination the way they were back in the nineties. So I really I'm at a loss to determine where they go from here. I mean, it seems like maybe you would just hold on to everyone this year and and hope that you can kind of make the playoffs and maybe that's enough in that market. And so then the question becomes, you know, are you happy being a six seed at best, you know, kind of being, they're kind of in like, you know, Detroit Pistons style purgatory for these last four years. Is that better than rebuilding? They just came from rebuilding, but yeah. they weren't able to really you- build anything that was that high a ceiling. Um I mean, I, I, I would be trying to move basically anyone, I think, and just taking taking my medicine and trying to really go back, keep, keep Isaac, keep Bolt, and maybe anyone else to me is on the table. And if you get worse ultimately, so be it. Uh, because to me, being the seventh seed year after year it is pretty meaningless, but that's not the reality in every market.
3: I think if based on what happened the last seven years, being the seventh seed sounds phenomenal to them right now um but it gets at, stale so at some point though, it gets yeah base. it gets stale quickly especially if you're getting there by by winning 83 to 78 so they they are going to have to make some choice i think they bought themselves a year of equity right but they're they're going to have to make some choices and inevitably it comes down to is where is the star coming from who who's who's on this team that can be the best player on a 50 win team
1: yeah and my answer would be you know, your number one draft pick in 2021 after you traded everyone. But, you know, it's kind (laughs) of... And, yeah, I I get it that that kind of sucks, especially because you're now relevant. But I said it about Charlotte when they didn't trade Kemba Walker. It's like, okay, yeah, you know, you could be around the eighth seed. You might get in some years. You might get not get in some years. But the rebuild is going to have to come eventually anyway. And so you might as well do it on your terms rather than guys just leaving in free agency or you have a couple of years where guys just get injured and you're not any good and you didn't get anything for these guys when you could have. And then you're going to have a forced rebuild, whether you want to do it or not three years from now, after you've been in purgatory for these three years, why not just do it ahead of time? I realize this is kind of a trope like, Oh, just do every team should just do the process and do cap space and, and tank and try and get draft picks. But for this team in particular, I really just, you can't even squint at them and see, where the finish line is, as far as being you know a fifty win type of team perennially, I,
3: I think I I actually I I think that finish line is a little bit more in view. I yeah. I think you're counting on Isaac becoming a monster. I think you're counting on like counting a, on, on offense though. On, uh, no, 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 no. The offense, the offense yeah. has to come by by making a trade. That that and that's that's gonna be the hardest part. They're gonna they're gonna have to at some point, and they may have to put assets into that. And they've done a good job preserving their assets, right? But at yeah. some point they may have to push those chips in and say, "Okay, you know what? We're, you know, we'll we'll take you know some of these guys who are fifteen, seventeen million dollar contracts or whatever, lump them together, throw in a first round pick or two, and and bring in somebody to be the guy."
1: I think there's any hope for Bomba? It looks, for from my standpoint, it looks like they just totally missed on him.
3: Well, let me tell you, last night was a was a rough outing for the uh, Bomba stands. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, look, look confused when he was out there. Picked up fouls quickly. The lower body strength, I think, is an issue. Um, he's, he's had. Looks like they they held him out uh, for rest the night before. So you worry about the lower extremities again, which is the reason he was out at the end of last year.
1: Yeah, and, and also the reason they made the playoffs last year, by the way.
3: Well, well, yeah. Cam Birch came in and gave them much more uh, competent play from the center position. It wasn't the only reason, obviously. Uh, they were also. Yeah. Miraculously healthy in their top six for the entire year, and but but it was definitely a turning point, without a doubt. Uh, Bamba is still really raw. He has some he has some skill to him in terms of shooting ability for a guy of his size, and obviously his his length is something that you hope can eventually be a massive factor on the defensive end, but it hasn't translated yet. And they knew they knew they were getting a little bit of a tr- project that he wasn't going to come in and be Luca right away and run the whole team. But I think it's taking longer than they hoped.
1: I think if you're going to maybe try to reshuffle the deck with these guys a little bit, I might look at someone like Spencer Dinwiddie, who's still pretty young, under contract for another year after this one. They would have full board rights on him after that. You know, maybe you could move Aaron Gordon for him, right? And and you might say Gordon plays a more valuable position, but as you mentioned, he's also the same position basically as Isaac. They don't have enough shooting when they play those guys together. Uh, the Nets, Dinwiddie might be superfluous. If you're going to hold on to Levert, you're going to have KD and Irving. You know, Maybe you don't need him. You need to get more athletic, uh, get some better defense in the front court. Um, so that might be the type of trade that I would look at. And Dinwiddie is young enough where, hey, maybe if you give him the keys every game, uh, and pair him with a center like Vucevic, who's so skilled uh, that maybe he could pop and get to be like close to a lower-level all-star point guard, and that's how you take a, another step forward. That's the sort of trade maybe in the short term I might be looking at. And then if that doesn't work, you say, we're going to really blow it up.
3: You, you know what's so funny is I was talking to somebody this weekend who uh, does not work for the Magic, but is somebody who I respect on Basketball Matters, uh, who mentioned that Spencer Dinwiddie would be a good trade target for somebody because he might be a lot better outside of Brooklyn without Kyrie there and whatnot. So it's funny you bring him up too, but, uh, that, yeah, that's, that's the type of thing I think they need to, they need to think about where, so there, there's two levels of how they can do this, right? There's a one where they just, where they just, you know, the Paul George trade, just here, here's all our assets, give us that, you know, top 10 player in the league. Obviously, I think that's something they, they, have to look at, but failing that they have to kind of cultivate a guy on their own who could maybe be their, their Lowry, so to speak, where a guy came in and, and wasn't really seen as a star, but evolved into one for that team. Yeah. Uh, Which is what, I mean, that's what we had in Memphis with Zach Randolph and Tony Allen, where they were, they were, you know, Tony Allen was a below mid-level free agent. Zach Randolph was a guy who came in a trade for a, uh, basically dead money contract. And so you're looking at how maybe can you, can you body snatch like that in Orlando? All
1: right. Uh, after that uh, depressing look at, at the magic, perhaps, uh, I don't know. Maybe it's not depressing. There's probably a lot of teams that would love to have their problems, but uh, let's uh, take a quick break. And then we got to do uh, some mailbag and a uh, Holland journey still uh, coming up here as well. All right, let's start here with uh McGee Patrick. Good question here. Another, long-term team building question I really enjoy talking about these ones uh, with you what is the Mavericks best and or most likely path towards a third piece and do they need one
3: well I I think we know what their best path is it's 2021 free agency and the reason for that is because that's right before Luka Doncic's presumable max extension would kick in so that would be the last year they'd probably have significant cap room with this group just set up the way they are with Luca almost certainly being on a max deal and Porzingis being on max already and
1: 35 million in space is my projection
3: for them and they're they're in position to they they have enough role players on seemingly movable deals they can get to whatever number they need to get to that summer if there's somebody who's worth that money the uh but Free agency is almost certainly their pathway, given the draft capital they've already given up. I, I don't think they're going to be able to make another deal like the Porzingis deal, where they where they put in multiple picks or whatever. They they just don't have the the capital to do that. And I think yeah. people look at them now too, is like, well, your pick's going to be twenty third, so why would I make that trade?
1: The yeah, yeah, they're out twenty twenty one and twenty twenty three picks uh, from that trade with the Knicks.
3: The equally interesting question, I think, is, do you even want to go that way? Do you make yourself too top-heavy on your roster when you have the three-max model versus having two-max guys and the flexibility to have a bunch of DeLon Wrights and Max Klebes around them? Is is that is that a better model? Or is it potentially a better model for this team?
1: Yeah. I mean, if your third guy is Tobias Harris, no, I don't think so. If If your third guy is Paul George or something... Then, yeah, I think I think you do get that and you figure out later, especially because then if you're that good, you can start to bring in some of those players, you know, Wes Matthews styles on uh, veterans minimums.
3: Uh, But don't bring nuance into this, Nate. We want absolutes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, So uh, but I mean, they, they obviously have been burned many a time. With their cap space aspirations, including this last summer, I think they probably thought they could be a little bit more of a draw for, say, a a Kember Walker than they ended up being. But we'll see. You know, I mean, if they if they're you know the five seed the next couple of years, which isn't out of the realm of possibility, they've looked pretty good so far here. Uh, then it, they become a lot more attractive there. Um And I mean, they still, like you said, they have right at eight million, Kleba's eight million. Uh, Seth Curry, 8 million, Finney Smith, 4 million. So that's pretty decent depth still. Uh, Dwight Powell, who I think is overpaid, but they, they seem to love there. That's pretty decent depth still around that third star. And I don't, uh, you get to the point too, this is a, a point that you've made a lot where, Hey, if you have a bunch of average guys, it's tough to upgrade by bringing in more average guys, right? You might as well go for uh, the big star there uh, and try to consolidate it a little bit, but, um, yeah, I mean I, it's hard for me to see where it comes from other than that 2021 free agency. I agree with you there.
3: And then if they do do it that way and and get that big free agent in 21, there's also that comes with that um, an uh, almost certain commitment to being a tax team for 2 or 3 years after that because yeah. Lucas going to pop from 10 million to whatever his max is and there may be a rose rule on top of that. So he's he's going to be getting in the 30s.
1: How good do you think Porzingis is? How's he looking to you so far? This year is he like you know dead bang number two guy uh, on a really good team to you now at this point assuming the, he stays healthy
3: I, you know I think the the threat of Porzingis has been as effective as the as Agreed. the actual Porzingis right in terms of guys hugging up on him and leaving lanes for the for the other guards uh, you see DeLon Wright and Jalen Brunson have a lot of room to operate just when he's out there with them people people don't want to leave him we also saw him. I think really struggles sometimes in, in post of like the New Orleans games. They put Drew Holiday on him and Porzingis couldn't move him and couldn't, couldn't get any kind of shot against him. And I don't want to jump here though. Like we should expect that he's still getting his timing back. He didn't play at all sure. last year. We should expect him to be a little rusty and, and not totally in sync. But man, that deep shooting ability at his size coupled with Luka's ability to pass is a, is a really, difficult combination. And I I do wonder, I do wonder if we're going to see teams switch more against them just because there's a fear factor in doing it because Perzingis is so tall. he can just shoot right over the top of it. And so maybe, maybe teams will abandon it because of that. But I just wonder if that's better than Luca getting you in rotation and you're scrambling and he's just able to pick out shooters left and right.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe your, your poison there though is Luca, uh, beating up your big in an iso that I think that's the bigger poison Porzingis yeah I'm fine throw throw it to him he wants to shoot a contested turnaround mid-ranger because he's not strong enough to back down like you know be my guess on that one but I think Luca is the bigger concern there
3: yeah well I I still I don't know I
1: you, you don't know if him, you buy him as an him, iso guy
3: like him playing one-on-one against against my big if I have if I have a good switching big I yeah. I feel pretty good about that I feel like he's going to end up taking it taking that step back and and you kinda live with that.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things. Like it looks really awesome when he gets it going, it seems unstoppable, but then, you know, you look down, he shot thirty two percent last year. You know, that's not you can live with that number. Uh, you know, as compared to James Harden shooting thirty seven percent on those shots. You know, that's a big difference. Um so
3: I do think yeah. there's a little more of a concerted effort to push him right too and take that away.
1: You you're talking about uh Luca. Luca, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I still, I still like him going right as well. And then he, if he gets downhill with the right, you got to bring help. He can throw that right. hand. Yeah, he's going to throw darts corner. with his
3: right hand. That's that's the yeah. problem to me with forcing him right. Yeah, yeah. That in his left hand, he doesn't quite have that same ability to pick guys out. But you're that that's he's really comfortable and he takes a giant step on his step back. It's really hard to get to that shot. Uh, all right, next question
1: here. In light of the Portland Mavs ending, to for people who missed it. Terry Stotts challenged a foul on Dame Lillard right at the end, uh, That Uh and it got overturned. They got a jump ball, and Dallas never really got a, a chance to tie after that. Uh It was with about 10 seconds left. In light of that, uh, how do you feel about the coach's challenge thus far? And, and let's just open it up here. We can talk about any aspect of, of the coach's challenge that's interested in you so far.
3: Yeah, the strategy of the challenge has been interesting because – some guys are using them right away. Some guys are really hanging on to them, making sure that they can have it for the high leverage moments even if they don't need it. In the last 2 minutes, a lot of plays get reviewed anyway, so you can argue the value of the challenge diminishes significantly when you get under 2 minutes. Although in this case, Stotts used it uh, almost on the final play of the game. It's uh it's a it's a thing they're still learning how to use. It's funny because I've seen a lot of G League games and and they have it in the uh in the G League and but it got used a lot in the G League on block charge which i i think in the at the NBA level is probably going to be used less because there's honestly there's just better officials like you'd see in the G League like it was like wow that was really wrong and 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 it would get challenged i think you see that less at the NBA level and then the other thing is with the three shot foul being so valuable you you almost don't want to use it unless there's a three shot foul right yeah Especially yeah. if you're especially if you're playing Houston, you know there's going to be one dubious one in there somewhere. <laughs> well, so
1: I, I talked to someone over the summer. This is uh, I haven't seen any stats yet on the challenges so far in the NBA, but uh, this is someone who who worked for the league. had access to the G League and then uh, the challenges that were implemented in summer league. And so uh, these are some of the things that he said about just the, the overall success rates. Okay. Out-of-bounds calls, when you challenge that, you get about a 50-50 success rate. Challenges to fouls late in the game were the most likely to be unsuccessful. Now, there's yeah. selection bias there, too, right? I think you you're, you get called for a foul late in the game, even if you don't think it's necessarily a if bad you, you call. You haven't used hey, your
3: challenge yet, so you might as well. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Uh, although there is the negative of, well, now you're forced to take a timeout to do the challenge. You only get two timeouts at the end, so you may not want to use... Your timeout at the end. Um, so the real
3: the real genius move then is to challenge a foul at three oh five, right? <laughs> before yeah, you yeah. before you lose that third timeout.
1: Yeah, no, I I think that that's something. And Steve Kerr talked about that too. He said, you know, when he it's your timeout coming up anyway. If you have a mandatory, that's a good time to challenge because it doesn't really it, that timeout's about to get charged to you anyway. So you might as well just take it. Um, so and, and then the other thing was this person I talked to said that foul calls that were challenged early in the game had the best success rate uh, because you're not going to challenge unless it's obvious. Yeah. Um, yeah. And whether that's your star player getting his third foul in the first half or the three shot. foul, I mean, I think if you have a three shot foul that you got called for and you, are pretty darn sure that that was a bad call i mean i think that one's a no-brainer i think you just use it then
3: well especially if it's a leg kick three shot foul where you can also put an offensive foul on another oh player. yeah yeah
1: well that's an underrated aspect too is that if you have a shooting foul that's challenged and they just overturn it to a non-call then it's a jump ball so also you might want to save those for you know when there's two on the shot clock and you get called for a bad foul because then at least the, the other team is probably not going to score, right? If there's if they got 14 on the shot clock still, and they they have the person who's going to win the jump ball, then yeah, I mean maybe you took two points off the board, but they still get thought, a, a possession. I thought back you were going to go a
3: different. Point. I thought you were going to go a different direction with that. I thought you were going to say, "Wait till you have somebody like Boban in the game, where you know you win <laughs> the jump ball."
1: Yeah, I think, I, I think it was like, uh, Matt Femrite who, who did, had a bunch of data on this years ago of like, who's actually, are actually the best jump ball winners. I think Valanchunas was like, really up there. There's rampant tip stealing, by the way. Like, I, I got a lot of problems with you people on the jump ball of just the terrible tosses, the amount of tips. Okay. Stealing.
3: So, oh, can we talk about this? That nope, that NBA officials can't throw a jump ball straight? Like, I, I've been an official
1: just at like, you know, intramural at my high school. like, I was able to throw the ball straight up in the air. Like it's yeah. not that hard to do.
3: Yeah, yeah. Like I, I I don't know like I don't know what it is that Ken Mauer's doing with that little <laughs> that the, the toss from his waist thing that he does and then I, uh, I think like his hair yeah, yeah. gel
1: is just like pulling his head back so far that he just like can't actually uh determine like what's straight up and down.
3: And then Kevin Cutler is going to elbow both players in the head. You ever see him with he does? <laughs>
1: No, I, he like, holds uh, the
3: ball up. He's, you've seen Kevin Cutler. He's huge. He's six foot eight. He's holding the ball up over his head with like, like almost like he's shooting a free throw and, and pops it up like that. There's, there's some, there's some interesting stylistic variations in how these guys do it, but there's not a lot of them where, where, where you think, wow, that ball went straight up right between the two of them. (laughs) There's, there's definitely, uh, De- definitely some toss quality issues. I, th- I think they should practice that a little more.
1: Oh yeah, th- this will tease the future episode. But uh, you and Seth talked about it on your piece uh, on the Athletic uh, this week. But uh, I would love to have more of a substantial conversation with you about officiating and like how you guys dealt with your your issues uh, with the official. But that that'll you have to sub- subscribe uh, to get that. We're gonna uh, that'll be a future episode. Um, all right, you ready for a little uh, Holland Journeys here? yeah sure all right so this early in the season you were you know we're about two and a half weeks in now you have drafted this player front office really thinks he's ready wants him to play you know michael porter jr he we groomed him all last year he's ready to go he's fully healthy mike malone's not playing him uh you talked about playing faster all off season you come in Six games in, 25th in the league in pace. How do you have that conversation with your coach about, hey, you know what, like, why are you doing it this way? This was kind of the plan going in. Uh, Just take me through what those conversations are like, because obviously, you know, I think every front office in the league is going to have to have those with the coach at some point because you're not going to be an absolute lockstep just naturally.
3: Yeah, and I think it's important that it's a – it's it's a flow and a back and forth and not just a single point where there's one meeting where you discuss this uh, the best front office coach combos have a constant stream of communication and back and forth so that even after the first couple games you can kind of say hey look I'm going to get Porter in there I know I mean Mike Malone was literally telling me 24 hours ago how much he needs to play Michael Porter and get him in there because he's so talented and it can't be a wasted year. So at, at some level, he believes. Well, in why these don't they
1: too. just uh, send him down to the G League, get some reps?
3: You know, I mean that the the G League is going to start <laughs> well, in another it, week. If I they have a gonna, G League
1: team. Sorry, sorry, that was my little Denver Denver dig there. Uh.
3: Well, you know what though they've they've never been shy about sending their guys assigning their guys to other other G League yeah. teams. Um, and they have by this point they've developed three or four. They have a pretty good partnership with i mean obviously they seem pretty pretty fond of uh of washington's in particular uh they they sent multiple guys there last year so i don't think any of that is is out of the and i'm not just talking about michael porter i'm talking about with with younger players in general that was one of the things we did in memphis now granted it was easier for us because our team was right there but you assign if a guy's not getting minutes on the nba team you assign him and and get a minutes with the with the g league team and the and the thing Uh, or the mantra that I always tried to keep in my mind with the coaches was this idea of use it or lose it. That if if there's this young guy and we have him on your roster day to day, and he's not playing, then we're going to take him and get him to the G league to get those minutes. But if he's actually going to play, then yes, we want him in the NBA game. That is definitely preferable.
1: Yeah. Well, okay. So, so I I interrupted you. We went on on that tangent. So uh, you, whatever it is, pace, system uh not taking shots from efficient areas not playing a certain guy you there's a disconnect with the coach how are you going to communicate that to him in a way that's not going to make him feel like oh man like you you know you're really attacking me here
3: yeah and ideally it may not be a disconnect at all maybe it's Maybe it's the coaches coming to you and saying, "Look, I know we wanted to do X, Y, and Z. I'm trying to accomplish X, Y, and Z right now. I can't do X, Y, and Z because of these other issues A, B, and C. You know, I'd like to run, but my center is 300 pounds. Or I'd like to, you know, for example, hypothetically, I don't know what team we would be talking about, but um, uh, you know, or or I'd like to play this player, but we our entire team is healthy right now, and it's hard." So you you just you just have a but if you have a back and forth about those issues it it's a lot easier than saying okay we're dragging you into the conference room now and we're going to talk about this like that 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 is by by its nature hostile and that it's, it's it's like any business right i mean it's ultimately it's the people and and how you deal with them that determine a lot about what your outcomes are going to be
1: i would imagine from the outside that simply Having a dialogue with the coach every day, even when you don't have some kind of an issue and you just want to say, all right, this is going really well. Let's take stock here. You know, What do you think is going on is really important so that it's not like, oh, man, weekly meeting. Like, how am I fucking up this week? Right. You know, it's, right. It's like, oh, actually, uh, no, we 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 talk about stuff all the time. So now this is one of 20 messages that you're getting per week or, you know, one of 20 conversations that you're having. So if you want to say something that, Hey, you know, I don't agree with what you're doing here. Um, it, it falls a little better when you just had a constant dialogue, but.
3: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And then as a front office, you still have to, you still have to be firm, I guess, in the sense that you're saying, okay, we, we understand that there are issues that are preventing this from happening in the present, but our overarching goal for this season is for this to happen. And at some point it needs to happen, (laughs) you know, so that there's, so that there, again, so that back and forth is happening, that there's an understanding, that there's the, the idea, nobody should be shocked by anything that, that happens as a result, I guess, is, is the ideal.
1: It's got to be so tough though, with coaches and front offices, because they obviously Have different goals and i would imagine one of the things that's really important is to try to align your evaluation of the coach of hey here's what your goals are for this year it's not just let's win as many games as we can and get to 37 wins instead of 33 if you know that's where your team happens to be you know you're going to be judged on how well do these young players develop but I think a lot of times coaches you know, and maybe this even is true in the past feel like, hey, you know what, you might be lying to me about that, or you know, the outside world is if if I'm like maybe I'm going to get fired here anyway, and the outside world doesn't care if I develop this guy a little bit more to be on your team when I'm not there. Like my record is what my record is. Communicating that and making the coach behave in a way that's in line with the organizational priorities. Rather than looking out for himself has got to be kind of hard,
3: well, yeah, and the elephant in the room is the average life expectancy of a coach, yeah in in a in a particular job because the turnover rate historically has been so high, and they're aware of this and they'd be foolish not to aware of this, not to be aware of this, that influences behavior it has to, and even and even the any statement of commitment. Uh, f- from management or ownership, I think is treated with a little bit of suspicion that, okay, well, if we lose six in a row, then how do you feel? <laughs> and, and, <laughs> I, and it's totally, it's totally rational on their part, right? Like that's, yeah. that's the environment the league has operated in. I mean, we, we saw it in Memphis. So that, that, that I think is a thing that, infects the coach GM relationship because in the front office, like our heads are in next year already by this time, we're already looking at free agents and draft and what's coming ahead. Our work, our work for this year, we don't, it's not quite done, but you know, we have in our head, we built the roster for this year. There'll be trades and call-ups and whatnot, but your head, a lot of times is looking at cap sheets in 2020 and 21 and figuring out where, where we're going toward next. Whereas, the, the coach's mindset is absolutely in the here and now and present where they're, they're not even looking at they're not looking at anything beyond next week or thanksgiving at best right and and so the those competing mindsets i think get in the way of a productive relationship and the best the best partnerships achieve uh a, st- a level of stability or security that can go past that i mean malone's been there long enough now with with tim Connolly that i think they can have a little more productive interaction probably because of that
1: so who are some coach and team relationships that stand out to you as being somewhat positive or so i shouldn't say somewhat th- like really positive in that area where you're like okay this coach especially for teams you know that may have been more on the rebuilding scale at least initially this coach is really in lockstep with the front office like they are clearly on the same
3: page well obviously Pop and rc is is the first one you think of yeah. right uh, th- sure. that's that's the gold standard um then you go through i would say neil o'shea and terry stotts uh that you know have they've been together a long time i think i think they get what each other's about and understand even if it helps when they have the same agent too well, it, it, it does, but even, even so, I mean, they're, sure. they're, um, and, and you've seen actually where there were, there were points in the beginning where they maybe would have had a little more friction about some stuff that they, that I think they don't as much anymore. They kind of get each other at this point. Um, I think you see, uh, Steve Kerr and Bob Myers. Um,
1: that one, I think there might, might be a little bit more this year just to, from, uh. From being around the team, but well, not now, I think they're all on the same page, but I think, you know, this year, the organization kind of punting on this year and getting hard capped. And like, you know, I think Kerr might have felt the expectations a little bit too high. We saw him even publicly kind of tamping those down. Um, but now I think they'll all be on the same page again because they, they're not going to win regardless of what they do, but that, that was one where I felt like they were in lockstep and then they may have brought some friction because of the moves this summer.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's you know, that's another part of it. Like you could, oh, the, the one I left out is uh Riley and Andy Ellisberg and Eric Stolster sure. in Miami.
1: Oh um, yeah, that one is just uh yeah, they really seem to be on the same page. Um I think of some of the newer tenure coaches, I think uh Atlanta and Brooklyn, uh, I think like they have really been on the same page as far as development. It's okay to take your lumps and, you know, Atlanta with Lloyd Pierce and, and Travis Schlank and they've done a pretty good job of, of developing players in, in those two destinations. Now now we'll see, you know, in Brooklyn, now that the expectations would be a little higher, how well that lasts. But uh, I think uh, to get to the point that those two teams have, uh I think it's all like when you look at the amount of minutes that players play on those teams as well, that really shows me that, you know, uh, in Brooklyn they basically never played anyone over 30 minutes until this year. Yeah. For example. And so yeah. like that really shows me that they're you're in lockstep a lot there.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We left out uh, Brad Stevens and Danny Ainge too. I think that's yeah. been a yeah, that's, that's a, been a good I, I mean, partnership. You you don't quite see it as ma- it doesn't manifest in maybe as as obvious a way as it does in uh in a situation like Atlanta where you know Cam Reddish and DeAndre Hunter are starting every game, uh but uh I, I think it's I think it's there um so we talked about
1: kind of okay the idea of hey the organization's long-term plans versus winning right now but what if you're in a win now mode but the coach isn't doing the things that you think are the best to actually win games right now
3: that's that's a hard conversation to have because you're basically (laughs) you're 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 basically saying you wish someone else was coaching the team (laughs) right like um it, you know it depends on how how big a strategic piece you're talking about too uh or you know the, the, there are, there are there are levels to this obviously but it starts with a, a communication you know here here's what we're doing well here's what we're doing badly in the in the eyes of in the eyes of management and just to, just agreeing agreeing on facts first of all does this yeah. you know is this guy good or does he suck? Like you'd, you'd be amazed how many how many times there's disagreement on that, right? Sure. And so st- start start there and then get to kind of st- strategy and tactics. Uh, Do you th- think
1: there's a certain type of player where coaches are more likely to favor him, whereas front offices are more likely to favor a different type of player? Just in your observation around the league as well as your personal experience.
3: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, the the thirty-year-old veteran who doesn't really doesn't really have a lot of pop, maybe, and you know, is just kind of an okay shooter. But uh, I don't know the uh, you you know you know the type of guy I'm talking like the Lance Thomas type. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> coaches coaches kind
1: of just by their nature they're about correcting mistakes, and so they value so much the absence of mistakes. I think, and perhaps overvalue it when, you know, maybe this guy isn't actually doing anything out there either, even if he's not screwing up.
3: Yeah. I, I, I would say that, uh, my, my experience would back that up.
1: <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I mean, or if you're just like, hey, you know, we're not shooting enough threes or, uh, hey, you know what, like we kind of need the transition defense to be better or something like that. I mean, is that just, do you ultimately just have to like take a step back and be like, all right you know, if, if he's not going to do this, we're going to fire him? Or is it like, well, you know, no, I want to actually, like, make these issues known and say, hey, this is what you you have to address. Because, I mean, you're saying, hey, you want someone else to coach the team, but, you know, there is a management aspect to it. Yeah. I understand how ridiculous it is, right, of like, hey, you're evaluating the coach, but you're not actually a coach. This person probably knows more about coaching than you, but yet you're trying to evaluate them at the same time.
3: You know, sometimes there's – and sometimes you realize in the back and forth, there are good reasons for things that are happening where you yeah. say, Hey, we need, we need to work on this and, and, you know, we're really bad at this. And the coach will come back with, well, we have limited practice time and we need to focus on this other thing that we're even worse at. Or, uh, that there might be a, there might be a situation that has nothing to do with basketball, let's say that is causing certain minutes. To be happening the way they are, <laughs> um, yeah. just just based on interpersonal dynamics in the locker room or other things that are going on, or or other players that haven't earned their stripes in some way. So there there are always elements of that, and it's amazing how many different levels you're asking the coach to deal with in terms of being the CEO of his staff and his assistants, in terms of managing the player development and players getting better. In terms of managing the game, drawing plays out of timeouts, uh, delineating roles for offense and defense, dealing with officials, uh, and then obviously creating the overarching strategy of the team and how it's structured and how it's going to play. I mean, we we ask a lot of them, and there there are very few people who are a ten out of ten on every single one of these axes. Yeah, and and that's usually where some of the tension comes in is that you realize that this guy is really good at this, but maybe not so good at this. And then you need to have a discussion about how do we get, how do we get you to be better at this? Or if you're never going to be better at this, is that acceptable?
1: Yeah. Well, uh, we promise that we are going to continue to get better at this <laughs> each and every week. Uh, you, you want to get us out of here, John?
3: Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks. Thanks everyone for listening. Once again, this is uh John Hollinger from the athletic and Nate Duncan. And, We'll be uh back at it next week and every week and uh we we hope you uh find us on Apple and uh iTunes and wherever else you can find podcasts and subscribe
1: all right uh John promises that he will do that better <laughs> next next week No, that's uh it, you're you're improving man you're you're gonna be a pro by the end of the year we only when got 40... I become
3: a podcast veteran next week, my delivery will be so much smoother. <laughs>
1: Yeah, we only got, like, you know, 50 more of these episodes uh, this season to, to get through. All right. Uh, well, thanks, man. This is fun, uh, and we will talk to you all next week. Till then. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary.
0: We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's.